Please do be seated. Let me thank you for your warm welcome to me uh, already this morning. And if you're here and you're new or visiting this church as well, let me offer you a warm welcome to our time together. My name is Craig, and as you heard earlier, I'm a minister in the Free Church of Scotland, planting a church in an area known as the Scottish Borders. And it's a real privilege to be here with you today. And what a day it is as well, Reformation Sunday, when we particularly remember those simple gospel truths rediscovered at the Reformation, those simple roots of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And this morning, we have got a real treat of a passage, a passage that will help us rejoice in this salvation that we have by grace through faith, and not only to rejoice in it, but to stand firm in it when we doubt it. And not to stand firm in it, but to rejoice in it and to sing in the truth of the salvation we have in Christ. You'll see on your bulletin, we're in Exodus. Before I read that for us, let me uh, remind us what's happened so far in that story Before God's people included the church, it was originally the people of Israel. And even more specifically, it was was one family. And this family grew and grew and grew just as God promised it would. And they moved to Egypt, and they'd been living in Egypt for 400 years. And they become slaves. And they witnessed genocide their own sons slaughtered the hands of the Egyptians. But God promised that he would rescue his people. He promised he would, so of course he's going to do it. And that is exactly what happened. And so God brought these ten plagues, these ten blows against Egypt, against Pharaoh. And eventually Pharaoh said, you can go. You can go and worship the Lord. And so out go marching about a million people, the entire slave labor force of Egypt. And they go to worship the Lord. They go to worship Yahweh. That's where we're up to in the story of Exodus. I'm going to read for us our passage today. It's in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, to the end of chapter 14. I understand it's normally your practice to stand It's quite a big passage we're going to look at, so I'll give you a week off, and feel free to sit as I read our passage for us. So let me read for us Exodus chapter 13 from verse 17, and then I'll pray afterwards. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. 
And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel, lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, 
Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray again before we dig into God's words, asking the Lord for his help. Let me pray. Our Father, we ask this afternoon, may you incline our hearts to your word. Free us, we ask, from all distractions or thoughts that threaten to take our mind off you. Give us ears to hear, we ask. And may you open our eyes to see truly wonderful things in your word. Unite our hearts together, we ask, and satisfy our longing hearts in your steadfast love, we pray. And may you cause our hearts to sing for joy. And it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was in middle school, we had these posters on the wall. You had a bread roll, a beef burger in the middle of it. But that wasn't all that was on this poster. There was some spaghetti bolognese in there as well, a roast dinner, a curry in there. And I used to look at those posters and go, it's a pretty good sandwich, to be honest. But on the bottom of that poster, there was this caption, you are what you eat. If I'm totally honest, as my wife would agree if she was here, that message was somewhat lost on me in my childhood. But the biggest problem with the poster, though, well, it's just not true, is it? You aren't what you eat. Rather, in Exodus, a better slogan would be, you are what you do. Who we are is reflected in what we do. And this is clear in Exodus, particularly applying to the Lord himself. See, God, he revealed himself in chapter 3 to Moses. And he said, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And then it's as if the rest of the story is God demonstrating who he is by his actions. God's deeds define his character. We see that in our passage here for us. If you've got your Bible, please do keep it open. Have a look at verse 4 of chapter 14. See that this whole event here is so that the people will know who the Lord is. Do you see that at the end of the verse? And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So what we're going to see in our passage is that 
we're going to see those great truths of the Reformation we looked at in the introduction. And of course, that, that makes sense because that's the heart of the gospel. And the gospel is throughout the scriptures. But pastorally, this truly epic story we have here is given to teach us that in the most difficult times of life, in the times when we are most tempted to doubt God, this passage will teach us that we can always trust in him because he has fought to save us. If you're somebody who takes notes, we've got two points in our sermon this morning. First off, doubting God in the face of danger. And secondly, trusting God in the face of his deliverance. Let's look first at doubting God in the face of danger. Picture the scene. You're an Israelite. You've been oppressed in Egypt. You've seen loved ones die. Die of exhaustion. Perhaps die in construction accidents. Perhaps your own son. Murdered in the genocide. And throughout all of that, you have held fast to the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've held fast to God's promises, the God who saved his people from famine. And now you've seen gods you worship come in and obliterate the Egyptians. And for the first time in your life, you walk out free. A free man free woman, no longer under that yoke of slavery in Egypt. And not only has the Lord saved you, but he's right there with you, leading you out, leading you along. But did you notice the surprise at the start of our passage this morning? Have a look at verse 17 of chapter 13. I wonder if you noticed this surprise in the first verse here. God doesn't lead the people you would expect him to go. The people were due to head to, to Canaan, to the promised land in the north, and yet here, where are they going? South. Now notice why this is. God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. If you're a Jewish person, from this perspective, this makes no sense at all. Here we see God knows better. If they'd gone that short route, they would have encountered the Philistine army, they would have been obliterated. They are not yet ready for war. Meanwhile, as they've left Egypt, they've turned right, they're heading south. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, Pharaoh has just come round to the shock of the Passover. He's realized he's lost his entire workforce. And so the most powerful man in the world at the time summons the most powerful army in the world at the time to go after this bunch of slaves. And what does he do? He takes 600 of his best chariots. And I love that line. And, and some of the other chariots as well. Now, what's that like today? It's like, well, guess 600 Abram tanks roaring through the desert and some other tanks as well, ready to identify the enemy, destroy the enemy. 
It's an arsenal so fast, so strong, they wouldn't stand a chance. And so put yourselves in the shoes of the Israelites here. The Israelites, they are camped by the sea with that immovable object on one side. And then the seemingly unstoppable force of the Egyptian army roaring towards them on the other. And who's the one who's led them here? Well, it's the Lord, isn't it? How would you feel at that point? How do they feel? Let's find out. Have a look at verse 10 of chapter 14. Let me read that for us. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us and bring us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What's happened to them? Well, they're so focused, aren't they? So focused on what is right in front of them that they've forgotten the God who stands right beside them. And so they complain. They complain to Moses, which is a, a complaint to God. It's a bit of a ridiculous complaint, isn't it? In no way was life better for them back in Egypt. And yet at the same time, I think we can sympathize with them, can't we? God, he's led them out. He's led them to this place. They've been obedient to him. They've done everything right. And yet now they're in trouble. They don't understand what is going on. They don't understand why God would allow this. They've come face to face with danger. And their hearts are filled with doubt. Does that sound familiar to you? If it doesn't, it will. If you follow Jesus, there's situations he will lead you into which are hard, that are painful. Situations we have no control over. And you think, why God? What, why am I going through all this? In a sense, we... We all know that. We've, we've come through the back end of a pandemic, haven't we? Something we can't control. We're feeling the effects of a war on the, the other side of the world. And yet harder things will come. Harder things that will cause us to have fear, have doubt. And when those times come, we will ask Why? Why have you done this, God? Why, why have you allowed this to happen? Why did my mother get that cancer diagnosis? Why does no one like me? Why did I have to lose my job? Why does my child get bullied at school? Why does my daughter come out as transgender? Why has my son committed suicide? 
Why do I have so many dark thoughts that every night it leads me to despair? Perhaps you're here and you're a new Christian. At first your friends, family were very supportive of that and yet now they're not so sure. They mock you, they ignore you. Why have you let this happen? Don't you care about me, God? Thing is, when those questions come, we can't stay at the why. Because if we do, we'll become like the Israelites there and put on the, the rose-tinted spectacles, so to speak, and, and look back and think everything was better. All because our eyes were filled with fear of what was in front of us and forgotten the God who's beside us. And we let fear and doubt grow. I mean, think again of our passage here. God doesn't see this situation at the Red Sea and go, my map was upside down. It should have gone that way instead of this way. No, not at all. He is in control. He knows what's best. He deliberately brought them to this place. Even when all the Israelites see is danger and hardship. Friends, isn't this true of the Christian life as well? Jesus doesn't say, come follow me and everything will be sunshine and lollipops. He says, come and die. Come pick up your cross and join with me in suffering. But suffering which is never pointless. I don't know why we get put in difficult situations. But here, like in verse 4 of chapter 14, what I do know is that God wants us to trust him in those situations. To trust him in our suffering and doubting because he gets the glory. And you might be here this morning, suffering. And if you're honest, that might sound horribly cruel to your ears. Why should I suffer so that God can get glory. Think of it like this. When we think of God, God is not a bigger version of me. My wife is here, there'd be an amen right now. God is not a bigger version of you. If, if I was to seek my own glory, I would be a complete megalomaniac. And at times I am one. If all you saw was me strutting about this place, seeking my own glory, you'd be thinking, who is this Daphne from Scotland? Life is not about him. And you'd be right. But if I live seeking my own glory, that wouldn't simply be wrong. It'd be evil. So you and I, we're just, we're just finite sinners. We are not the center of the universe. But God... God is not like me. God is not like you. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his goodness, power, justice, holiness, and truth. He is the center of the universe. All things are made by him, through him, and for him. And so it's only good that he gets the glory. 
But here's the thing which helps us in our suffering. When God gets the glory, we are the ones who benefit from that. What does that look like? Well, when God seeks his glory, he does it by saving sinners. Saving sinners like you and I. He does not just by saving, but by serving. Through serving sinners, he saves like you and I. Like us, the Israelites aren't squeaky clean, are they? They aren't perfectly holy people. They're people who've been saved, but are quick to forget their salvation. See, when God leads us into difficult times, when we are filled with fear and we doubt God's goodness, what we need to do is not focus on what is causing us to doubt in front of us, but instead look to the God who's with us, who has fought to save us. And that's what people begin to do. They've gone from doubting God in the face of danger to our second point, trusting God in the face of his deliverance. Danger's looming, they're doubting, and look what Moses says in verse uh, 13 of chapter 14. Wonderful words here. Fear not. He says, don't be afraid. Why? Why, Moses? Why shouldn't we be afraid? Why should we not doubt what's happening? Well, he gives us the reason, doesn't he? It's one thing to say, fear not. It's another thing to back it up. What's he say in verse 14? The Lord will fight for you. You've only to be silent. Watch him. Put your trust in him. So what happens next? The Lord tells Moses to, to lift up his staff, to, to stretch out his hand. And notice in verse 19, God surrounds his people to protect them from danger. And a mighty wind comes and separates the sea, and the Israelites can walk through it. I've got three kids, six-year-old, four-year-old twins. One of their favorite films, The Prince of Egypt. I don't know if you've seen that before. I love this scene in that film. The Israelites walk through, past the Red Sea, through these skyscrapers of water either side. And there's a, a lightning bolt. And you see the, the outline of the fish that are right there beside them. And as the Israelites are making their way across, they're almost at the other side. And in text we see God lets the Egyptians in. They, they don't come in on their own. God's the one who lets them in. All that pent-up frustration ready to get these people who've left them. The chariots are heading in and the Lord throws them into confusion, throws them into panic. And the hand goes up again from Moses. Verse 27 of chapter 14, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that have followed them into the sea. And then just so we're sure, end of verse 28, not one of them remained. Now how would you act if you were an Israelite here? What would your response be to this? Well, look how the Israelites respond. In verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. <laughs> Wouldn't you in that, res 
in, in that time respond that way? You've literally seen a sea part. You have walked through. You've seen the most powerful army at the time be swept away again by the sea. Isn't fear and by that reverent awe and worship of who the Lord is the right response to that? What else would you do? What would you do when you see your salvation accomplished? When you see your enemy vanquished? I think you do the same as the Israelites. You'd sing. Isn't singing the right response to salvation? What a glorious thing that is, rediscovered at the Reformation. Singing God's praise together in response to his salvation. Songs that rejoice in who God is and the salvation that he has achieved for us. And so that's what the Israelites do. They witness their salvation and they sing. What do they sing? It's not the, the Little Rock Fight song. But they do sing about a fighter though. Chapter 15. Striking God's providence. We had that as our call to worship. They sing about a God who has fought for them. They sing the Lord, Yahweh, is a man of war. A warrior. Yahweh is his name. I love the book of Exodus. Such an epic story, isn't it? Such a gripping story. It's no surprise there's so many films based on this book, is it? And yet what we see here is that it's a true story that points towards a greater reality. A rescue story, not just for the people of Israel here, but for everyone who will trust in Jesus. See, so read the Gospels, John's Gospel especially, we see that Jesus is the God of Exodus 14. In John's Gospel there, he says, he is Yahweh, he is the I Am the God of the Exodus, and then he goes and crosses the lake, not by parting water, but by walking on top of it. Then he goes and does some other Exodus-type miracles afterwards. But Jesus came not to save us from getting wet. He didn't come to save us from an Egyptian army. Jesus came to rescue us from death because of our sin. To rescue us from Satan, sin, and death. But for Jesus to rescue us from those things, God's anger for our sins still has to go upon someone. There's still a tsunami of God's wrath for our sin. But as one poet writes, we are spared that burning flood only by the blood. Only by Jesus taking the punishment that we deserve on the cross can we be saved. What Jesus has done for us, it's as if Jesus is standing in the middle of that parted sea with the waves of God's wrath on either side. And we can pass through safely. Safely to our heavenly home. Because he stays standing in there. And on him the full ferocity of God's wrath was poured. Poured on him on the cross. And if you're here and you're not a Christian... This salvation in Jesus Christ is offered, it's, it's to you today. Take it seriously. 
It's a wonderful offer. His death in our place. All glory be to Christ. And what reminds up here in Exodus 14 is that if you come to Jesus, he will fight for you. Because he has fought for you. Your greatest problem in life is dealt with. And your problems right now, they could be monumental. A pain so great, you didn't know it was possible to hurt this much. A depression so dark, you, you can't imagine what it feels like to, to feel any other way. And those things are important, and they are, and they're real. But what we need to be reminded of is that those things are insignificant compared to our sin. And Jesus has fought for your salvation up until the point it cost him his life. And he chose to do it because he loves you. As Paul says in Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As we come to a close, let's go back to where the Israelites found themselves. Down a road they didn't expect God to lead them down. And when God leads you down these roads that cause you to fear, whether it's physical suffering, relational suffering, the darkness of mental anguish, the anxiety of paying your bills, whatever these things are, you may never know why he led you there. The Bible doesn't give us the answer why. What the Bible does always give us the answer of is who. Who is the one who is with you? Who is the one who has caused this to happen? See, when we are filled with fear and what lies ahead of us, we need to look to the God who is always with us. The God who is with us by his spirit. And remember that he gave up everything to have you. Everything. So he'll never forget you. You're not far from his mind. And some of us will do that more instinctively when doubt comes to think of God. I've done this for certain. I'm speculating. It's human nature. But think of those Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Some of them probably marching down with the right swagger. Come on, Lord. You've got this. We're going home. Others, I'm sure, were terrified. You're trying to get the way to the front of a queue, desperate to get through, worried of the water crushing down on top of them. But both were saved. Because their salvation was not dependent on how they felt, but entirely dependent upon the God who's fought for them. Because their salvation is by grace, through faith in him. And friends, God, he has fought for you. He has won so keep looking to him. Keep looking to what he has done for you and spur one another on, as I'm sure those Israelites did, walking through the Red Sea. Look at what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Rejoice in such a great salvation and may that cause your heart to sing. Let me pray.
Father, forgive us. We ask for our short-sightedness so often. We see what is in front of us. And we forget the God who is right there with us. Yet thank you that you gave up the most precious thing to you, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that hymn, what gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. And so thank you that you have not forgotten us. You will never forget us. So may you help us be a people who point one another to you, to point one another to that simple gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Help us to be people who dwell upon that. And may you so raise our affections to Christ in doing this, that you cause our hearts to sing. We praise things for your glory, Lord Jesus, and for our joy in you. Amen.